Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. Cool. So Kevin, you were talking, you were saying that you started your career in marketing enterprise software at Yak. So why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about where you were um, and and what you were working on before kicking out, kickstarting Luna. Yeah. So so I'm from Maryland. I went to UVA. I actually studied computer science. So, but I graduated in 2013, and like back then, engineering was like not cool. Like that wasn't like the sexy path to like making a million bucks. Like that wasn't that cool yet. So I actually went to investment banking first. I worked at JP Morgan for about a year. So that's how I came to New York, and that sucked. Uh, so I quit after about a year, got my bonus, and left. I joined. I basically just joined like the first company that I saw other smart people at, which was Yext. I did no diligence on the company. I was just like, yeah, sounds good. I'll join. There was about 100 employees when I joined. And I started a marketing team, did a lot of demand uh, uh, there, kind of demand building there. Then I went and started the finance team just because of my background there. And then ended up running strategy. Um, so by the time I left uh, about a year ago, uh, I think the company was at about 1,500 employees or so. Um, but yeah, that was my, my career has mostly been in enterprise software and People always like Kevin. Like, what transferable skills have you brought over from that world to you know to the alcohol space? I'm like, well, it's not too much. There's a little bit of like general life skills, but I don't know about you know, specific playbooks. Like, it doesn't really translate, you know. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's one of the questions that I was gonna have because you don't you don't really hear that story too much of people coming from enterprise and then getting over to. Although, actually, we did have. Um, uh, one one friend come on recently, Greg Frontiero from New Wave Coffee. He was uh, he ran sales at like Stack Overflow and everything like that. So and then he launched a uh, like nootropic coffee that I actually drink every day. It's amazing. But um, yeah, he might be a good person to talk to as well because he he made the jump from enterprise to CPG. But um, anyway, getting back to you guys, what I think for like the audience, it would be cool to just talk a little bit more about what were you know, what were you working on at Yex in, in those various roles? And let's kind of try to unpack of eight, eight years worth of learning at Yex. Yeah, my first, so when I joined Yex, it was kind of just a generic kind of like analyst team and kind of a lot of the projects were marketing focused. So Yex, it basically, we, it's, a, it's a local marketing software, right? So it powers local search, local SEO, like that's kind of the main thing. It's primarily for uh, local businesses uh, back in the day. And so a big part of what our first task was with our focus area was really around how do we get more local businesses to sign up for the software. And so it was a lot of A-B testing. There's a lot of like, okay, well, we're running these campaigns, right? This, these LTOs, how does, that, how does that convert to types of accounts? What industries, what verticals of businesses have the highest LTV? Like what, which ones have the highest conversion? What messaging works for different types of businesses? Like, you know, for your local pizza shop, what's the right messaging to get them to buy and convert? What's 
for your local dentist, they probably have more money. So then, you know, we probably don't want to discount as much. And so that was kind of the first uh, kind of the first year or so of my, my tenure at DX. Uh, then I joined the help build the finance team, the FPNA team, just to prep for IPO. So a lot of modeling, really getting deep. Like, you know, as a, as a banker, you kind of go at, go at it from like a top down approach where it's like, hey, you know, you've got these, you know, five years of financials for this legacy company. Let's just take those years of data and just like forecast out, you know, make up some assumptions. Whereas at a startup, right, it's very different. It's a very bottoms up method where you're like, okay, number of doors or number of accounts, right? What's their churn rate? What's their, what's their monthly growth? Like that kind of build is just such a different uh, approach than the high level hand wavy stuff you do as a banker. Um, not belittling the modeling they do because it gets pretty detailed as well, but it's definitely more detailed coming in from the like from a company perspective. Um, so did that for about a few years, and then we hired uh, Mark Ferentino, uh, who was who became our chief strategy officer. Uh, we hired him, and he was looking to build a strategy team. So I was uh, pulled over to start that, and yeah, running strategy is pretty fun. Like it's very different. Like corporate strategy is very different in you know at, in different types of companies, right? At a company like Microsoft, you might do like. You know, you might focus on just one little thing for one product, right? But corporate strategy, actually, the mandate is very broad. It's just generally organic growth. Right? Like that is your mandate. And so it encompasses so many things from, right, from competitive, uh, like, landscape, right? And how do you compete effectively to pricing strategy, uh, to channel strategy, right? And to, like, you know, is selling to enterprise the right kind of main growth channel? Or do we want to invest in partner ecosystems, um, geographic expansion, right? Adjacent markets, uh, new products. Like those are all lumped within kind of the mandate of organic growth. So it was pretty cool uh, getting a chance to actually work on almost, on basically all of that uh, at, a, at a young company. Um, and so we launched like, you know, we identified financial services as a pretty, you know, good vertical for us to sell into. And so figuring out what pain points there are, what the, like, what do we need to say, right? What's the product marketing that we need to come up with to really sell effectively into that vertical and so like what product tweaks do we need to make to make it more effective like that that kind of stuff and so that became our top vertical um after about two years which is pretty cool um yeah just like all sorts of projects there within um kind of that purview about and i was on that team for about four ish years um yeah and then here we are running an alcohol brand yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I think it's really cool that you got the perspective of like you were saying, like the, the startup lens of things in the beginning, like what, what are focusing on like the inputs and growing the business that way, then moving on to, um, you know, the more like banker, like financials, where do we project from here, as well as getting into the strategy stuff. So um, why don't we just one more question on strategy, and then we'll hop over to what you're building at Lunar. Um, so what, like, you know, obviously you got to know a lot of the different parts of the business, but what were the, what were some of those like key learnings um, when you were focused on strategy that you think you can apply to Lunar now that you're like running your own company? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, when I was a banker, you don't really understand how the, the corporate machine works, how a business operates, right? You don't understand that there is all these cogs in the machine. Each one turns and intersects with each other and that each different cogs turn at different speeds and have different inputs that make them turn. And like, you never truly understand that intricacy of, of interplay until you actually work at a startup and you're like, wow, you're seeing it in, in action, right? Like having our SDRs, right? Like the more SDRs we have, the more leads and more meetings you can, you can put on the books. 
and that can turn into more sales and more deals closed, and that drives ACV, and that you know feeds into your pipeline, right? Like that feeds into your forecast, like that as a as a final, like that's such a unique thing, and you know it translates over, in, you know, across industries. Just it, it just manifests in different shapes, um, or like you know, thinking about things like pricing strategy, like how does pricing get communicated to a consumer? How does that align to their needs, right? How does that scale with their pain how does that scale with as they have as they grow like how do we make sure that we're capturing value that is delivered but not you know capturing too much value and like it's you know really interesting things like that like even like in software you know there's there's this rule where you want to be capturing 30 percent of the value that you, you create um and that seems to be the, the right number and like i don't know who came up with that number like that's just like when you look at all the different companies out there when you look at all the case studies all the you know that you build that seems to be the perfect fit. And it's just really interesting. And being able to increase the willingness to pay um, is 100% dependent on how you communicate uh, to, the, to the customer and how you personalize your pitch. And like when you have a software platform, you know, you sh- as you sell it as a horizontal solution, like, hey, we have this software that, that does X for, and, and it does X for everybody. You know, you might be in your vertical and your specific use case, like, oh, okay, well, that's cool, whatever. Like, that's not really particularly interesting, but when you then frame it to be like, oh, but we actually do why, which is the same thing. It just it just like phrased a little differently and we use the right words. Like, you know, if you're in the healthcare industry using patient instead of using you know, consumer, like that all of a sudden starts to click for your buyers. You know, they start to understand like, oh, I can now relate better to the pain points you're bringing up. But you're right. That does, that is something we are focused on. That is a, a goal for us that we want to care, that we care about. And all of a sudden, now you're unlocking value that, you know, that in their minds, like this is perceived value that just increases as you speak, um, as you demonstrate. And so it's like that kind of thing translates in, across industries, right? Here it's like, you know, instead of positioning and product marketing, now it's like A-B testing, messaging and positioning. And, and it's still product marketing to an extent, but at, at a smaller level uh, comparatively. Yeah, of course. I think I think being able to tailor a message and being and have that apply and hit the ears of the person who's receiving it the right way is so so important um and that is applicable across software and for any product right um so moving moving a little bit forward what was what what was the first idea and inkling that you had that you wanted to start um you know something like lunar in the the cpg alcohol space and what uh when was it that you decided to to go all in on it? Yeah, so Lunar is the first Asian American craft hard seltzer that's made with real fruit from Asia, and you know it's definitely didn't grow up thinking I would start a hard seltzer business like this. Did not you know this was not in the cards when I was born, but what had happened you know like how the idea came about was my college friend and I were eating Korean fried chicken uh, at a at a spot in a Midtown East and we're, you know, it's like 10 PM. We're like drunk and we're, we're eating and I'm drinking a lime white claw. He's drinking Bud Light. And one of us was like, why is it that we're drinking these drinks? Like the food is so authentic. There's clearly thought and effort put into the food. Why is that same level of care not reflected on the drink menu? And you know, next thing you know, right next morning, we're at like the grocery store and you see the same thing play on the shelves. It's like, okay, well we've got lime this, black cherry that. We've got IPA this and like five other IPAs. I'm like, okay, there's got, there's got to be something here for that specific use case that we're looking for. And so we decided, you know what, let's just start making, trying to make something uh, to solve that need. 
So we spent about, you know, we spent about a year and a half actually learning how to homebrew. So I ordered a bunch of kegs and tanks uh, shipped to my studio apartment in East Village. My girlfriend was unhappy. It's like fifth floor walk up. It's like, you know, 500 square feet. And she's like, dude, we have nowhere to live. Um, so we spent about a year literally brewing, um, you know, like watching YouTube videos, reading like homebrew Reddit, like homebrew forums. And, you know, we started making beer at first. You know, hard seltzer wasn't even like the main thing. We just wanted to make, make a drink. So with beer and beer tasted terrible. Um, that was definitely not the right move. And so, you know, that was when, and this was 2019. So that was when White Claw had, you know, the infamous, like, you know, like White Claw shortage. Like that was, that was their summer with that they really popped off. And we were like, well, White Claw doesn't really taste like much. And so I think we can take that and, and make that a lot better. So we took, you know, we started learning how to make hard seltzer. And we were like, look, that's all artificial flavors. What if we use real fruit juice from Asia? And so I, I went to Japan. Uh, I went, you know, I called a buddy of mine who is, who is Japanese. I'm not even Japanese, I'm Taiwanese. I called a buddy, I was like, hey, I need a favor. Like, can you come with me to these farms and like help me source uh, Yuzu? And just like help me translate. And so anyways, we ended up sourcing some really dope juice. Uh, and then we kind of incorporated that into uh, some of our brewers. And then by, you know, after about a year and a half, our friends were like, dude, this is really good, Kevin. Like you, you should probably try selling this. And we started, you know, so October 2020 is when we launched our first flavor, uh, our Yuzu Hard Seltzer, and it sold out. And that was crazy because like, you know, this is middle of pandemic, right? So there's no... There's no like go to market in restaurants or like retail. Like this is just purely online, and you know we, we just it was there's no marketing. It was literally word of mouth. It was literally just friends, um, and friends told friends, and then all of a sudden we were we were out, and I was like, okay, we we might be actually on something here. And so uh, about four months later, February was when we launched the rest of our SKUs. So we launched our lychee hard seltzer that's made with real lychee puree from Thailand, and a Korean plum uh, hard seltzer that's made with this. Uh, Basically, that's a Korean plum that's fermented in brown sugar for about 100 days. Um, so we, that's our, that was our third SKU. And, you know, like the reason we didn't even know that you're supposed to launch multiple SKUs. Like apparently that was the thing that you're supposed to do that. We didn't. We had no idea. Um, you know, we were like, OK, well, <laughs> this first SKU clearly sold out and people were like, hey, you should have more flavors. And I was like, OK, that's when we started meeting more people in the industry. And we we're like, hey, you should probably do this and do that. So um, so in February of 2021 was when I went full time on it. Uh, we raised a small friends and family round, um, and then I was like, you know what? Let's let's just go at go after it. You know, summer's coming. Let's just see what we can do, and yeah, haven't looked back since. You know, I I think that's so cool. It sounds like it came about very organically. Like you were clearly, you know, you just found a, something that you were really into. Like in terms of like, oh, let's let's brew. Let's see what we can make. And then once that process started to kind of crystallize, you're like, okay, let's turn this into a product, let's turn this into a real business, right? Um, so I guess my next question would be um, those first those first batches and getting everything set up, like you'd obviously figured out the recipe and brewing stuff like in the home, but like what did what'd your first production run look like? Where'd you go to? Who'd you go to for all the components that are gonna be necessary to put like uh, a consumer grade product uh, together? Yeah, that was a challenge, man. Um, you know, in the beginning, right, we're home brewing and, you know, obviously we're not selling it, but it turns out you can't just sell homebrew, of course. They, you know, that, that regulation makes a ton of sense. Like, you shouldn't be able to sell your own homebrew. Like, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. Um, but navigating all of the, the regulation, like, this industry is so, you know, alcohol industry is so regulated. Um, like, that was a huge headache to navigate. Um, and I think a lot of people new to alcohol, I think that 
is a big part of why it takes so long to launch because you just don't know. Um, if you're new to the industry, like you don't know that these are licenses you need to get or these are the other ways, like other paths or alternative routes that you can get to get to a license, to get to a place where you can actually start selling. Like those don't get illuminated until like you start really digging and really asking questions and really trying to find out, like reverse engineer how other brands do it. Um, and that's like actually how we, how we figured it out too. Like we actually looked into a lot of other alcohol brands. We searched their like corporate name and we're like, okay, well, what's the license? And kind of reversed lookup um, in like government files. Like, okay, what, you know, what license do they have? How is it being sold? Where is this label registered under? And then we found that there are like these back office providers that can help expedite the process of go to market in the beginning. I was like, oh, well, like that, that was complicated. <laughs> There's no like playbook. Like here's how to launch how to launch alcohol brand one on one like that that medium article didn't exist you know um so yeah like that's no so that's kind of how, how we began our first production run like official one so we actually spent you know just going back to googling we were looking at like contract producers right this is kind of the what you mostly like it's a co-backer but in alcohol terms i guess so we were we were contract brewing uh for our first run and we actually you know saw, uh, saw an article that grim ales uh, that they had, uh, where they were interviewed in, and they had mentioned that their first contract brew, like they used a contract brew out of this place called Beltway in uh, Northern Virginia, and we were like, oh, okay, well, Grim has dope beer, um, so we should probably hit them up too, and alongside like fifty other craft breweries that we also hit up. And one of the funny things is that, and this is, and so this was you know early twenty twenty, craft breweries had no idea how to make hard seltzer. They like had not figured that out. Um, and, like a lot of craft seltzer in twenty twenty tasted really bad, um, and it's like they they didn't know. It's actually quite different. Like you know, it's similar but also very different to making beer. And so many of the breweries we talked to, like they're just we were, like we went over, looked at the equipment, looked at what they had, and I was like, well, it's not very good. Uh, I don't know if you can pr produce what we were looking for. <laughs> um, and so we ended up with the same brewery that you know that uh, Grimm had used back in the day, and. That was a lot of learning. Um, we, you know, I'm, luckily I'm from, you know, I'm from Maryland. My co-founder is also from Maryland, surprisingly. Um, and so it was a good excuse to like go home, see family, um, but also like go like hit, hit up the brewery. And we were like pretty involved like on every single step of the way. Cause like taking your home brew recipe and then scaling that up to, you know, to barrels and like gallons, it's not really the same. Now you have like, you know, professional equipment um, that you need to figure out. You gotta source all the cans. And luckily, a lot of our, our sourcing was, was assisted with, uh, like, by the country brewery. So they would help us find cans, for example. Awesome. Um, so a couple of questions I, want, I wanted to run through. First, um, so I know you mentioned that there are a lot of, like, um, you know, formalities and, like, legal procedures and, and certificates and stuff that you need to obtain. So, like, if you're just launching uh, a brand, like, what are some of those, um, you know, what are some of those things that you need to obtain? Yeah, we so we thought that we needed a manufacturer's license. That was not the case. Um, if you use a contract brewer or you know co-backer, right? You you can use theirs. Um, then we were like, oh, not I guess we don't need that. But the next tier in the three tier system for alcohol, right? You have manufacturing, you have the wholesaling, and then you have the retailing, right? And you know all three need to be separate legally. Like that's that's how it is in the U.S. Uh, thank you, Prohibition era. Um, but so we're like, okay, well we don't need a manufacturing license. So we moved on to next tier and the only remaining tier, which is the wholesaling license. Like, okay, let's look for that. 
Um, and we thought we needed that too. So we actually applied for a wholesale license so that we could distribute our own drink, our drinks. And then we actually received that. And in the process of applying for and receiving that license, we found out about, there's a few companies in the alcohol space. One is called Park Street and one is called MHW. Uh, these companies basically can act as your license holder. So you as a brand owner don't need to hold any of the three licenses. In fact, all you need, you would just ride under theirs. Um, and so to a, you know, in the eyes of the law, it's, it's, it's their, you know, they're like your wholesaler. They're the ones selling your product, carrying it. The product just goes from your manufacturer straight to them. And you're not really involved in it at all, like on paper. Um, and so like we found out about that, like six months into the process, waiting for a license. And we're like, oh, okay, well, if we had known this, it would, would have been helpful. We wouldn't have wasted five grand getting the license. But um, yeah, so that's kind of what happened. Um, and we're, so we now use uh, Park Streets um, as kind of one of our back office uh, providers. We still have our wholesale license, actually. Um, it's been helpful in times of like, for like operational needs. Sometimes it's helpful to be able to swap between the two. Um, but so for anyone starting an alcohol brand, you should look at those. You don't need a license. Unless, unless I would say if you're like wine, like it depends, it varies drastically based on category. Like if you're wine, I'd probably recommend you start in California and like, you know, there's a lot of advantages on the DVC side if you're a, a, if you're a wine. Uh, no, that's, su that's super helpful. And then the second question that I was going to have around um, what you had mentioned, but like talk to me a little bit about um, seltzer, like brewing it and what the difference is. Um, and what the challenges are for some of these um, manufacturers who typically brew, uh, you know, beer and, and other sort of stuff. Yeah. So seltzer is made almost basically the same way beer is made. Um, you know, beer, right? It's it's yeast eating carbs and it becomes alcohol. With seltzer, it's yeast eating sugar that becomes alcohol and there's no hops involved. So literally like, you know, there's something uh, in our days of Googling, we came across this recipe called the apocalypse brew. Um, basically this is like, look, you're in the, you're in a zombie apocalypse and there's like zombies outside and you're like, fuck, I'm going to die. Uh, but I just need that one last drink, right? I just, I just need to get one last drink in before I die. How would you go about doing that with minimal resources? And the apocalypse brew is the simplest way to make alcohol, which is you take yeast and sugar, the two simplest things ever, and that will create alcohol. And that's actually the, that's the basis of all like you know, traditional hard seltzer. It's yeast eating sugar to create alcohol. And then you, you know, flavor it or do whatever the hell you want with it to make the end product. Um, and so that part is not, not hard. The hard part is, is after making the alcohol. And for us, you know, it was vitally important for us to use real fruit juice and purees. And, you know, these, the problem is that in juice, there's sugar. And so if you have any yeast that's left over in the end product, that yeast will continue to ferment it'll eat all the sugar you know, in, in, in the fruit juice, it'll continue becoming more and more alcoholic and you'll end up with a bottle bomb because your product's not gonna be shelf stable. Um, and so to prevent that, you have a few options. You can either use chemicals and ways to kill all the yeast, which is generally like additives and like, you know, that's usually, at least for us, it was important not to do that. Um, like we were a fully natural, no artificial ingredients brand. So then the other alternative was, why don't we use just aggressive filtration systems to remove every single last yeast cell out of there. And like yeast cells are pretty small. So like you kind of need a fully like, like, uh, like a whole setup of filters to really get all that out. So like we had to invest in that upfront um, at the, the brewery to like make sure that we were getting shelf stable product at the end. 
Um, and like not all breweries even had the ability to accommodate either new equipment or to have like filters installed and in, in, to incorporate it into like the rest of the setup. Um, so that was a challenge for just finding a place that could do that. Um, and then like you know, the flip side is also <clears throat> based on the yeast strain that you use to create the base alcohol, that has a really big impact on the, the taste profile of the end product. The, the yeast strain that we use coupled with the water we use, like our water is from upstate New York. Our, our, our co-packer now is in, up, in upstate New York. It's a very soft water. The yeast that we use is a soft, is like a very specific strain that creates a very soft, like feeling, like alcohol base. And so like our seltzer is very soft feeling. It's like very, it's a really sharp difference from like your white claw, which is like, it's harsh and aggressive and like punches you in the face, which is like, there's a time and place of getting punched in the face. But at least for me, I'm not trying to do that all the time. And so like, there's a lot of different levers that maybe, you know, at the, at the beginning you might be like, oh, like just whatever, like whatever strain of yeast works, you know, it's, they actually all end up um, like the craftsmanship matters to get to the end product that you're, you're trying to create. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense because like every single input makes a difference in terms of the flavor and then the repeatability and you need to make it shelf stable and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the next thing I'd ask along those lines is, so you, you kind of figure this out. You're like, if we're going to make this work, we got to, we have to be able to filter our product. And obviously this is a contraption that isn't, you know, out of the box at every single um, one of your manufacturers. So what was like the MOQ or like minimum order quantity that you needed to run on your first run to be able to like add in the filters or like what what did they say? Were they like, oh, hell yeah, let's throw in some filters. Let's make this happen. Or, or were they like, we're only going to do filters if you do this much quantity with us. So what was that whole process like in terms of getting your filter so you could land on the product that you wanted to get to? Yeah, our first... You know, our first run was around like 30, 40 grand, I believe. Um, and it, 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 you know. And when you say, of, and, and just to, just to jump in there, when you say like 30, 40 grand, like how much product is that purchasing at that, at that scale? Yeah. Our, so our cost per can is right under a dollar a can, like all in. Um, it, it could be better for sure. Um, I think when we first started, it was like a dollar 20 per can. Um, and you know, when we, we started like then that was like the the smallest run that's 30 barrels uh worth that run it's funny because even with the brewery we chose they had no experience brewing a seltzer that used real fruit juice like in 2020 every single seltzer out there used artificial flavors like that was that was the thing like, there's no other and even today there's like very very few brands that use real fruit juice because of the challenges it faces from a shelf stability standpoint um and also it costs more obviously yada yada and so like <laughs> It was very limiting in the beginning. Um, we weren't. We were kind of tied on like how many different options we had to to, to produce this. Um, and so with the brewery we worked with, like they were phenomenal because they like, you know, we had all these crazy ideas that we wanted to do. Like, hey, how about this? Let's let's throw that in. And so they were willing to like learn with us. You know, like we were learning with them. They were learning with us. Um, like our first run, we had filters. We had, we got lucky on the first run. Our filters weren't enough actually, but we just got lucky that somehow all these didn't like nothing got through very, very lucky. Um, we were not always that lucky. Like we definitely had a failed run like, right afterwards that was, well, there was yeast that got through and so things were not shelf stable. And so that was a pretty big loss. Um, but like, you know, I think those learnings, like that was just trial by fire. Like, okay, well, what does your filter setup need to look like to produce this product? And for us, you know, it's a lot, also a lot of like, we needed to have the conviction that 
this very, very expensive investment like would be worth it, right? Like, you know, obviously there's investment of like the filters and equipment, but those, there's also the investment of like risk, right? Of like, you know, failed production runs that, you know, you as a brand owner, or, you know, you're on the hook for. Um, so yeah, that was, and I, you know, I think, it, I, th I think it's paid off. Um, you know, it's a very differentiated tasting product. There's not many else out there that use real fruit juice. And at the end of the day, it's like, you know, now, now that brewery knows exactly how to, how to do it, you know, like they've, they've learned and we've learned as well. Like here's exactly what not to do. Here is like all these different options that are not enough to, to ensure, you know, a high quality, stable product at the end. Um, Kevin, why don't you walk us a little bit through, um, cause I know you mentioned that like in terms of risk, like if you do a run and something goes wrong, you're on the hook for it, right? So why don't you just talk to us a little bit about who's responsible for what risk in, in these sort of relationships with the manufacturer and also in terms of your um, like kind of QA process and making sure products like ready to go before it goes out. Like how did you identify it? You're like, oh man, this, this, this other batch we did, this isn't going to be good to go. So like how, how, does, how, does, how do both of those come into play? Yeah, I think, you know, this has been one of our biggest learning journeys is the operations front, right? Um, I think, you know, there's a few parts that in generally, like with any co-packer or any, you know, contract producer, it's pre-negotiated in the agreement. Like, yeah, here are the things that the producer, the manufacturer is going to be on the hook for, right? Like human error, like, you know, from there, like, you know, will, willful negligence or you know, XYZ and like, there are checkpoints throughout a production process that you will be measuring that can tell you, hey, this is who whose fault it is. Um, but if your producer goes through all the different checkpoints, right here's here we know we did we did a count of yeast cells, we did a count of bacteria, and those turned to be zero. So you know it's clear the tests, and it, you know even if there's some freak accident afterwards, that's on the brand owner. Like that's not on the manufacturer because the the tests were the tests. Now you can pre-negotiate and add more clauses if you know what to ask for. Very, very rarely do brand owners know like what to ask for. Like you need to be like a microbiologist to like, or, like a food scientist to really know if you want to like get super technical. So like part of this is also like, I don't know, is there insurance on this stuff? Like I, I, I would doubt it because it's like, it's so subjective. There's so much risk. Um, every single product that's created is so different. Um, I, there's no way there's like someone, one size fits all solution. And I think the biggest lesson learned is to, I mean, is to get smart, really. It's to know, like, in like, I think us being home brewers for two two years helped a lot, in the sense that we knew, like, here's the things that you can control. Here's the things that should not be on on us. That should be on, you know, the other party. Like, there was a lot that I think we benefited from. But at the end of the day, it's also like we're looking at like we're doing like chemical formulas and like really trying to figure out, okay, well, what if we do that? What if we do this? Like, it's you know, it's like oh, I shouldn't have studied computer science. I should have studied something else. <laughs> um, yeah, you're more of a chemist these days than than a computer scientist with Lunar. That's 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 awesome. But um, and then in terms of like you were saying that, so so that makes sense. So you basically set up um, you know a, a bunch of things that you and you know like an SLA that you'll agree upon with your manufacturer. But you're like you're saying is you can if you guys agree on every part of the contract and they like we did this, we did this, we did this, everything checked out. But then the batch turned bad. Then the risk is you know on on you. So what does that QA process look like? And how did you, you know, you said you guys had an experience, for example, with a bad run and a bad batch where everything like made it through all those different points that you had outlined. And then you're like, okay, still, you know, went bad. How did you identify that? And, and how do you solve for that? 
Yeah. So our first batch, no, sorry, the, the second batch we did, that one failed. And it wasn't because of shelf stability. It was actually because of a unforeseen uh, incidents due to switching the yeast strain. And so we actually switched to a, a different yeast strain for that batch because this new yeast strain is higher yielding. It would get a higher ABV at the end. It can, you know, it's higher attenuating. And that allowed us to drive costs down. Um, and, you know, and we were like, okay, well, we didn't, and we didn't test it. Like we were trying to rush to like get the market and like restock. So we're like, okay, let's just swap the yeast. Like how, how big of a deal could it be? Um, like it wasn't that different from the, the first one we were using. Like, okay, this shouldn't be that bad. And ends up that yeast strain uh, essentially produces a lot of sulfur um, like, after, like as a byproduct of the fermentation process. And well, self, sulfur doesn't smell great. Um, and so like afterwards, like it checked all the boxes, right? There's no yeast, right? There's like, it hit the, the ABV we're looking for. It hit all the different things in the SLA that, you know, we expected. It's just that when you open the can afterwards and try to drink it, it just like smelled pretty bad. And we were like, well, that is not, you know, this off-putting aroma is not what we want in the end product. So that was a botch. And I think the biggest lesson learned there is, you know, test things before you change them. Um, and like we were just rushing and, you know, maybe in, in hindsight could have stayed out of stock longer. It was still winter. Like who's selling, who's like selling massive amounts of seltzer in December of the pandemic? Like no one really. Um, so we probably could have afforded to be a little more, more deliberate. And so like afterwards we were much more deliberate um, and diligent about our production run. But it's an expensive lesson to learn. No, a hundred percent. But sometimes it's better to learn those lessons early on than to, um, you know, learn them later. So um, I'm glad you you guys know and you know which strain of yeast to stick with and, and everything like that. Um, my next question was going to be in terms of like going out. So now you've got the certification to sell. You've got, you know, your products produced. Um, you know, you have your little SLA and filter filtration process set up. What is... What is it like selling alcohol? Were you, because I know laws vary across state lines, um, you know, were you, how were you physically selling this product? Were you selling it online and deliver, or you, were you doing like last mile delivery? Were you doing um, local retail? Like where were you physically selling those first uh, batches that you were running? Yeah, so when we, so when we launched, you know, this was winter, you know, of 2020 to 2021, right? And so it's not a, pretty bad time um and so our first kind of like channel was was online so we worked with a platform called taproom um they do like same day like last mile delivery for alcohol within new york city um so they they were like kind of our one like we funneled all inbound all leads all customers to that one platform so that was like our only retailer um and after we had the rest of our flavors then we started basically hand selling into accounts and you know, in alcohol, it's hard because you can't, you have to sell state by state. The law is different for every single state. And so you need to be licensed in every single one, or you need to have a distributor, a separate distributor in every single state that you want to do business in. So when you, when you go online and when you see like CBG, you know, founders or CBG brands, like landing like 2000, like, you know, target accounts in one go, like that's, that's dope. Um, that's not really possible from an alcohol side like that. You know, we can do 20 accounts you know, at a time, we can't do 2000, you know. Um, but our go to market, you know, kind of our strategy was really to focus on restaurants. Um, like many, like basically no other hard seltzer, like that's like, they just sell to retail, right? They sell to grocery stores, they sell to your package stores. Um, and that's been their bread and butter. 
Um, and we saw this big opportunity kind of stemming from how the idea came about. Like, hey, we're at this Korean fried chicken restaurant. You know, there wasn't a high quality kind of seltzer that was authentic that had, you know, flavors that were reflective of the rest of the menu that really paired well with the food. Um, so that was a big part of kind of our go to market is going really heavy into restaurants and using that as a way to help build our brand by saying, like, by showing that we were basically partnered with and on the menu at all these dope spots. And so kind of our first accounts were like 886, which is a Taiwanese American restaurant in St. Mark's, uh, Dion D, a Vietnamese American restaurant in Greenpoint, like Win San, Taiwanese, Taiwanese American restaurant in Brooklyn. Like these are like hot spots, right? Um, and for us to be on the menu there, to be able to say these are accounts, like these are accounts that no other seltzers are in. These are accounts that it's just like, it's just like beer and then that's really it. Like we are the first non-beer offering on the menu. Uh, for, for the most part. And that was a big part of a go-to-market. And it still really is a big part of a go-to-market uh, focus is continuing to build out the brand, right? Because you'll have a customer go to that restaurant, have a great dinner experience and see Lunar on the menu and be like, whoa, like there's a lychee hard seltzer. Let me try that. And they'll try it, right? It's a very easy sampling opportunity. They'll just try one can. There's no commitment. It's just one can. And they'll try it. They'll love it. And they'll be like, wow, where do I buy this afterwards? And so it's been a balance of like making sure we have enough demand, right, from customers trying the product and then being able to have places for them to then transact afterwards. Hey, go buy a pack at your local bodega. Go buy a pack at your local uh, store or go buy a pack online. And online definitely, I would say, is, is tough because customers are, you know, in the alcohol space, people are not so accustomed to buying drinks online yet. Like besides wine. All other drinks, people are more accustomed, especially in seltzer and beer, people are a lot more accustomed, accustomed to buying it on the spot. Like it's, it's very much a, I'm going to a party and I need to bring something or I'm coming back, I'm going grocery shopping and I, re I remembered my fridge is out, what should I grab? It's usually a spur of the moment decision. And so it's all about, you know, getting shelf placement. Like that's how, that's where you win at the end. Um, but I think for us was first building the brand and then switching focus to like getting onto shelves um, and getting into stores. No, I love that. And I think that it makes a ton of sense if, if you're trying to be a startup and you need to allocate resources somewhere, like being able to test and being able to get into restaurants in the hands of customers, in the hands of specifically restaurants that have like your target audience there, like engaged, that's gonna be awesome. So one piece that I know is like really important to you guys as a brand is the whole like Asian component with not only just the juice, but also like the ethos of the brand. So why don't you talk to us a little bit um, about that and your guys' positioning and, and, and values there? Yeah, I think for us, you know, this brand is, like Lunar is very, it's, it's, it's very personal to myself and my co-founder. It, it's, it reflects our exploration of our own identities. Um, so I, you know, coming to New York, I kind of forgot about who I was as an Asian American. Um, I was very focused on like work and career and success. And it was only about a few years in that I started really re-engaging with that part of my, my identity, right? Really trying to explore who I am. And so I started volunteering in various Asian American nonprofits. And so that thread has always been on my mind. And after we started Lunar, we found out, we, we learned the stat that like 93, in the U.S. alcohol industry, 93% of like the people in the labor force, owners, whoever, is 93% white and it's 88% male. And that, those stats, like, I feel like the only other less diverse industries are like trucking and like, I don't know, like some other industries, but like it's, it's up there in terms of like least diverse industries. And that 
shows in the types of products that are created, right? They are created for what that group of people know. And that overlooks a lot of communities like the Asian American community. And, you know, at the same time, right, you have like this wave of Asian America, which is really rising now, right, with Squid Game and with Bling Empire and with, you know, Aquafina's movies. Like it's, it's very much a, you know, I think the Asian American community is really rising right now. And we felt that that was an overlooked community. And so like for us, being a brand, being intentional about who we are as an Asian American brand and not just like an Asian inspired drink, like, oh, here, we threw some lychee flavors into a drink and called it, you know, like Asian seltzer. Like it's, we're being very intentional about the sourcing, the formulation, the positioning that we are a very high quality drink that like the goal here is to communicate the stories of our heritage, right? It's to say like when you drink our, 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 our seltzer, when you taste our lychee seltzer, if you're familiar with the flavor, you might be re- reminded of like, you know, summers in Taiwan with grandma at the, at the fruit stall, like buying, buying lychees in the sweltering heat. Like, but, it, but then, and then if you're not familiar with like the flavor, you'll try it and you're like, holy, like that's really unique. That's very complex. And you want it to be as true to the experience of that flavor of that fruit as possible. And like, that's kind of the, you know, what we're trying to play at here because hard seltzer is such a unique product where it's insanely accessible. It's so approachable as a format and to use that category, that product type as a, as a medium to storytell and to be experimental with flavor. Like that is like, it's, it's just such a unique product. Um, and so like we've done flavors, like we did a pineapple cake flavor and you're like, what is that? Like, so pineapple cake is basically Taiwan's national pastry. It's, it's buttery. There's like little pineapple jam in it. There's, it's a pastry. And so there's like bread, you know, there's, there's eggs, there's oil. And you're like, Kevin, how the hell did you make a pastry into a seltzer? Like that does, that sounds wild. And it is wild. Like we even put MSG in that seltzer. It was, a, it was the world's first seltzer with MSG. And, but when you try it, like, you know, you're like, holy fuck, like you've got a, like, what is this? And, but the thing is you want to try it because it's hard seltzer. And you're like that, I, I know that. And I love hard seltzer. So why don't I actually give this a try? And I think that is really emblematic of like what we're doing here. You know, like our first products are fruit-based, right? That's kind of our main core line, right? We have yuzu, lychee, Korean plum, passion fruit. But we've done these like collab flavors like pineapple cake. Um, like we've done a mint omija, which is a shisandra berry. It's like this Korean superfood berry. We, like we've partnered with the restaurants and chefs that make these crazy flavors that, that basically, you know, explore a facet of their heritage. And to take that story and to put it in this very accessible medium, like that's kind of the end goal of the brand. And like, that's our ethos, right? Is, you know, and our, our tagline is Asian Americana in a can. And like, that's what we mean by that. It's taking all these experiences, all these stories and really distilling it into this very approachable format. No, that's something I can I can for sure relate to too with the, with the lychee thing and having some Asian heritage myself. Like I, it it takes me back to my childhood. I would always have these like, um, you know, those lychee little like I don't know. They're like these little plastic things, and you peel the top off, and and you just like have them. Um, and and yeah, it's it they're fantastic. But so I'm I'm really pumped to to try the seltzer. Um, my next question about like the market and the tailwinds and like what you see around seltzer as a category. I think, you know, what you had referred to before about like White Claw and how like it almost like took America by storm and it's like this explosion of a new category. So like, what do you, what do you see in terms of like hard seltzer and, and just the 
as a category and like where where that's going from consumer preferences and like where where do you where do you see it all playing out yeah i think there's a quote from i think like the core's founder had said this like like something along the lines of like hard seltzer is like the, like one of the fastest like categories that came to light in alcohol since light beer in like the 80s and actually it's funny if you think back to the 80s right when light beer was invented like the, the whole premise of light beer is that it's easy to drink it's low calorie um it's like pretty bland right i mean it's like not crazy flavors it's just like it's light beer then in the 2000s craft beer took over right craft like that decade was insane for craft beer and the values that consumers cared about now were taste like unique taste local brand mission uh and like they didn't really care about the low calorie thing anymore they didn't really care about the light like they, they all of a sudden cared about different things and then hard seltzer came about in the 20, 2010s and we, we we went back to the era of light beer which was low calorie light taste you know artificial flavors like we went back to that and now, you know, and that was hard seltzer, what we call hard seltzer 1.0. And we're now in what we call like seltzer 2.0, like RTD 2.0, which is, well, you know, we're going with this, right? It's now we care about flavor. We care about mission. We care about brand again. We care about the quality of the ingredients. And, you know, it's life is very cyclical. Everything is very cyclical here. And I think that's where we are now where consumers have been drinking egregious amounts of White Claw during the pandemic and they're tired of that and they want something new. They want, they're tired of counting calories. They're, they're ready to party. They're ready to have a good time. They're really, they're ready to like enjoy, enjoy life. And I think that is where brands like ours, right? Like Lunar brands, like long drink, right? Brands like Owl's Brew, like June shine, like these, like that's who we consider like our, our friends in our set. Like this, that's what they're about. It's good taste. It's a brand. There's a mission there. And it's something that consumers can really rally behind. And like, that's where we see, at least right now, this current evolution of this industry. And I think like, call it 10, 20 years in the future. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to like Tokyo or any of the listeners or have been to any like, ma- one of these like crazy, like ma- major Asian metropolitan cities. Like in Tokyo, anywhere you go on the street, you'll see these huge vending machines. Like just, there's like everywhere. And they just have it, like, ridiculous amounts of drinks. And they're all types of flavors and all types of cans and bottles and formats and some of them sparkling and some of them are not. And it's just, it's like this huge variety. It's like Willy Wonka's like fucking world of drinks. Like America is not there yet. You know, we're still, we're still drinking Coke and Sprite and Pepsi and Fanta. Like, you know, we have Olipop and we have a lot of other brands, Challenger brands coming out, coming out now. And like, we're slowly getting there, but we're nowhere close. And that's where I see the U.S. and the Western world there. And, you know, I think Europe and Australia will follow soon after that's kind of where we're going to is this like nirvana of drink heaven where there's all types of drinks for every single occasion for every single drinker. And it's, you could be the most weirdly niche person in the world and you can find a drink for you. Like that is where we're getting to. Um, and I think this, we're just one step along the journey. Yeah. And I think what's cool about the hard seltzer stuff, especially as a category is like, you could imagine like beer as a whole category and like wine as a category. And if, if like hard seltzer continues to take off and be its own thing, like the fact that you guys as your own drink are already in restaurant menus and on bar menus like that, that's, that's a really cool indicator. So, so long as the, the, the tailwinds, like you were saying in terms of the market and what the market demands continue to blow in your favor, it's going to be a really good thing. Um, and then the, the, one of the last questions I have as we, as we come up on time here is just, 
in terms of like go to market now, given that you you've solved for production, you've um, you know you've gotten into some like really big retailers like you know i know you had mentioned trader joe so maybe before we wrap up why don't why don't we go into a little bit like that what what is it like as you scale up so now you you first started selling locally and and now you you make your way into bigger sort of distributors so why don't you walk me through like what was it like selling into an account like tj's um and how'd you do it and what what's that relationship like yeah like you know the first you know we've been around for 14 15 months now and like a very, very big portion of that time is literally hitting the streets, just like talking to every single account and just like selling. And, you know, even up in, up until Trader Joe's happened, you know, I was, whenever we were like exhibiting or demoing at like a wine festival or a whiskey festival or a seltzer festival, people be like, this is so good. Like, where do I get this? And I'm like, oh, well, where do you live? You know, and like, I'll, I'll point you to like that one, like independent grocery, like in your neighborhood. Like there wasn't that one key like account that was like, this is it. And so when we landed Trader Joe's, I think, that was like all the demand that we had accumulated for the past year, all that brand value that we unlocked by being on the menu at like all these restaurants, like all of a sudden that just hit in this like wave. And so, you know, we landed Trader Joe's, we, we got on shelves in early, mid-March. Um, is that right? Early, mid-March, maybe late, late March, early April. Wow. Um, and the first, like they, they purchased everything. We sold, like apparently we were, and don't call me on this because this was an informal one, but like, you know, we were, we were told that we were like one of the fastest selling items at Trader Joe's um, that month when we got in and we did no marketing. And the reason we did no marketing is because we had no product left. Like they had bought everything. We didn't expect that surge. And so we, we got caught flat footed. Um, and, you know, to walk it a step back, you know, the reason why we didn't prepare for that surge is, we, we, is because we didn't even know that we were going to get into Trader Joe's. And, you know, I've been we've been talking to Whole Foods for about a year plus now. And so like that process is still ongoing. And so that is kind of the benchmark that I've always had in my mind, like not being from this industry. I just always thought that major retailers kind of just take like a year plus. Um, but with Trader Joe's, it happened way faster because we had customers request us at stores. And they were like, hey, like, have you guys heard of this thing? Like, you guys should look into this. You guys should carry it. And that let us land um, and get like catch the eye and the ear of the regional buyer where they're like, okay, great. Like this sounds perfect for some of these stores. Let's just give it a shot. And that's how we actually got in. And that was a, it took us like three weeks, like basically to get in, which is like way faster than I, anyone anticipated. Like that's faster than some other like one store accounts that we sell to. So it all just hit and we, you know, we were caught without product. And so we spent weekends literally like going to warehouse, just packing and like canning and labeling. Like we're just like, whatever we need to do to get back, you know, back in stock as soon as we can, like we just had to do it. And so the past month has been a, has been insane um, in, in, in the best way possible. No, absolutely. That's a, it sounds like an amazing problem to have problem nonetheless, but, um, and I know it's gotta be a bunch of work to, to push through that, but um, it's, that's, that's awesome to hear that you guys were able to, to pull that off. And I'm sure whole foods will be the next domino to fall. So um and then, you know, just before we wrap up, like, why don't you walk me through the rest of like your go to market if you had to envision it, right? Like now you're in a big account, um, you know, clearly you're refining your processes and you're trying to match uh, cons brand awareness with like, like you were saying, where you can actually physically sell your product um, and versus like different 
state regulations and juggling all that. So if, if you had to just walk me through at a high level, like putting your finance strategy hat on, like how are you thinking about the go-to-market from where you are now to call it the next year? Like what, what goes through your head and what's the strategy um, as you continue to grow? Yeah, it's, you know, I think in this space, it's a balancing act. I think, you know, having too much demand means wasted investment and then having too much supply means obviously wasted capital invested in inventory. And so I think it's, it's that balance and how do you accelerate that balance together as quickly as possible? Like that is very, I think just uniquely a, a very challenging problem to, to, to figure out. And I think for us, when you think about like the playbook that we had, it's been very much a on-prem restaurant led go to market to build brand and to do events with those restaurants to help build brand in conjunction with those places. And then the demand follows afterwards once we unlock chains. I think with our new markets, where we might have chains unlocked on day one, I think that is where we might need to actually start looking into doing paid media or like doing actual, like we haven't, all of our marketing has been word of mouth. Like we have done no paid. Um, we, have, we haven't done any paid influencers, sponsorships. Like we have done none, none of that. It's all been just word of mouth and fully organic. And it's getting to a point where we're like, okay, in New York, that's fine. Local markets is fine. Um, but when we're trying to think about expanding quickly and scaling quickly, we might need to use paid, not as a, you know, people always say that it's a drug and like, once you start doing it, you get hooked. Like, I feel like this is less of a drug and more of like a, like a backstop. Like, we're, you know, the playbook is still very much around local community. Like that is very, very effective. Um, it's very, very cost, you know, there's high ROI there, but how do you supplement that when, when there's no events going on or when there's no partnerships that you can do when there's no cool activations that you've planned? Um, like, how do you fill the void there? Um, and I think, I think that is the challenge that, you know, we probably still need to figure out too. You know, we definitely don't have it down, uh, like as a science, but it's, it's an interesting problem to tackle. Yeah. And I think have, coming from where you guys are at in terms of like being more disciplined and not doing, not, you know, only knowing what it's like to grow a business with a bunch of paid marketing. I think that puts you also in a good place to like layer in paid and see how it works as a channel and test it out and continue that like strong, like true authentic growth. So um, that's, that's awesome to hear. Anyway, looking forward to trying out some Lunar for myself um, and, and finding it at, you know, some of the best restaurants in New York. So uh, always into that. Want to thank you for coming on and and sharing everything with us today. Um, it was super insightful. And and I guess my last uh, the last thing would be like for any of our listeners, where where can they connect with you? Where can they find you? Are you on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram? Like where are you you personally and and as well as Lunar the brand? Yeah. So make sure to follow Drink uh, Drink Lunar on Instagram. That's our primary social media account. Um, you can get Lunar in stores uh, in New York, Virginia, and Georgia, and shipped to your house uh, broadly throughout the US. Um, if you wanna follow me for whatever reason, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kevin Wong. Uh, I'm the one with Lunar in my profile, so that should be easy to find. Um, and I'm also public on Instagram at Woven King, which is just an anagram of my name because like there's 800 Kevin Wongs out there, so they're all taken. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, thanks for coming on, Kevin. Have a good one. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. This is great.